This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. This week, again, we're going to use the Midweek podcast to focus on Gaza. And we're going to carry on doing so for as long as the situation demands. Events there are simply too important for us not to address them. So for the time being, this Midweek podcast will come to you as Battleground Gaza. Do keep listening because the way things are developing, the conflict there is likely to be every bit as significant for global politics as the war in Ukraine. That's right. It's also been as fast-moving and dramatic as the opening phase of the Ukraine conflict. Though as we speak, of course, there is a pregnant pause as the Israeli government weighs up how to proceed with their threatened ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. We're going to start off by considering the options open to the Israeli Defence Forces in what can only be a fiendishly difficult operation before going on to look at the possibility of the Israel-Hamas conflict exploding into a regional war with all the dangers that will bring with it. But a fiendishly difficult operation? Those are the words of American former general and director of the CIA, David Petraeus. He's not wrong, is he, Patrick? No, and he ought to know, having commanded troops in America's wars in both Iraq and if Afghanistan, both events which have some bearing on what is now going on in Gaza. Now, to start off, we should step back and ask what this operation, proposed operation, is trying to achieve. The Israelis say they're seeking the total eradication of Hamas as a military force. Now, let's just think about what that means in purely tactical terms, if I can put it like that. Now, Gaza might seem very small to the 2.3 million people who live there. It's only 365 kilometers square. Uh, to put it in a context for British listeners, that's um, about the same size as the Isle of Wight, which has a population of 135,000. Um, in military terms, though, capturing it, holding it, and systematically destroying the ability of Hamas to operate will be huge, huge challenge. A large chunk in the center of this territory is dominated by the heavily built up Gaza City. Now, taking that will mean infantrymen going street by street, district by district in what's going to be very difficult terrain. The intense Israeli air campaign has reduced a lot of these buildings to rubble. And of course, that provides the defenders with great positions from which to operate. They've also got the use of a network of tunnels uh, from which they can pop up, attack and disappear. The bombing would have collapsed some of these, of course, but there are still estimated to be many miles of them. Now, if Hamas chose to stand and fight, they could turn Gaza City into another Stalingrad. Now, that's not an idle metaphor. This, this really is going to be a very, very tough challenge for the IDF. Their mighty air power is, is going to be useless in these circumstances. And so in the end, it will come down to hand-to-hand fighting almost. And to add to the devilish complexity, the government and the army are operating under conditions of blackmail. They'll always have at the forefront of their minds the fate of the more than 200 people they say Hamas has taken hostage. And they'll also have to consider the number of 
Arab civilian casualties the operations will inevitably cause. So far, Palestinian sources are saying 5,000 people have been killed in Gaza, and this is before the ground attacks even begun. So in the long run, uh, that's going to have negative diplomatic consequences for Israel, which will also have to be taken into account. But even in the purely tactical sense, or can you see any way in which Israel can achieve their declared aim of destroying Hamas militarily? Well, it's going to be, as you say, Patrick, incredibly difficult. The difficulties have already been illustrated in an advanced cross-border operation on Sunday down on the southern end of the strip near Khan Yunus, where the IDF launched what was apparently a hostage rescue mission, which didn't succeed, and the Israelis confirmed one, one of their soldiers dead. Hamas, meanwhile, claimed that they had also destroyed a tank and two bulldozers in the battle. And if you remember before, I mentioned the fact that they do have actually quite good anti-missile kit on these tanks and these bulldozers. But clearly, if these reports are accurate, they didn't allow them to survive that that minor engagement. And and of course, we're well before the major uh, incursion. An additional complicating factor, of course, is the presence of those 200 or so hostages. Four have now been released, another two this morning. So two Americans over the weekend and another two Israeli, all of them elderly. That's all four, uh, which, by the way, Patrick, is fairly typical for hostage situations and happened at Entebbe. The thinking among the captors is that you get rid of the elderly because for health reasons, they're often more trouble than they're worth. And the release, on the other hand, makes it look like it's a humanitarian act. The Hamas has already said as much this morning. In fact, of course, it's pretty cynical. Uh, And the fact that they've released a couple of hostages, uh, don't be fooled into thinking they're suddenly about to release the rest. Having said all of that, the release of these hostages, of course, uh, encourages world opinion to assume that more can follow. And so the UN and the European Union, to name just two organizations, are putting pressure on Israel this morning to delay a ground operation to allow time for more negotiations and, of course, for aid to reach the beleaguered cities of Gaza. As and when the ground operations do take place, the Israeli military will try to move methodically through Gaza, as if that's going to be easy, engaging any Hamas fighters who oppose them while trying to keep civilian casualties to a minimum. I mean, all of this is just an almost unbelievably difficult operation. We do have a little bit of an idea of what it might be like, Patrick, because they've done similar incursions before, two full-scale major incursions in the last 20 years. Uh, And one of them, uh, there's an account by a soldier who took part in it, he described the the movement across streets as literally destroying buildings before you enter them. That That's how brutal this type of fighting becomes. Hence the reason for the IDF saying that all civilians have to move out of these built up areas. I mean, it's an absolutely brutal type of fighting. Tough, of course, on both sides. The Israelis know the identity of many of the Hamas leaders, of course, but the chances of killing or capturing all the foot soldiers who will simply retreat back into the shadows and merge with the civilian population seems to me to be an almost impossible task, but we'll have to wait and see. And even if they do occupy all of Gaza, stop the rockets and snuff out, at least for a time, any obvious sign of Hamas power, what then? There does seem to be a bit of a scenario developing, Saul. We can't really comment on it because uh, it's just an idea at the moment, but this could possibly end with a big ceasefire for hostages trade. I mean, that's that's what some people seem to be pushing for in, in this idea seems to be getting a bit of traction in Europe. So that's one thing. We haven't seen it before in this conflict. It tends to be linked to getting Palestinian prisoners out of Israeli jails. But this could be one way that this could uh, actually 
bring at least a temporary cessation of hostilities. I don't think it will in the long term, because politically, I, I think the Israeli government has to be seen uh, to do its best to actually physically destroy Hamas. But you know, even if it does succeed in that, it's only going to be temporary, isn't it? We've got to bear in mind that this this has been tried over and over again, and it's never succeeded. Something that I think listeners might not be aware of is that the official name of the Hamas military wing is the Izzadin al-Qassam Brigades. And I think this is quite telling, this. Who was Izzadin al-Qassam? Well, he was a Syrian preacher, uh, what we would now call a jihadi, uh, who encouraged the Arabs, the Palestinians, and other Arabs, uh, the Lebanese and the uh, Libyans as well, to rise up against their colonial masters. In the case of Palestine, it was against the Jewish Zionists and the British mandate rulers. Now, this was all 90-odd years ago, and the goal was to create a free Palestine run along strict Islamic lines, pretty much what is uh, Hamas's stated aims are today, though, of course, their enemy is Israel. Now, Izzadim al-Qassam was killed alongside some of his followers in a shootout with the Brits uh, in 1935, and in death became at least as important as he'd been in life. He became an instant inspiration and a martyr, just as those killed in the current operation will become to the next generation of young Gazan males. So as far as I can see, this is, uh, it could be just another, uh, what the IDF rather cynically call a mowing the grass operation, one of these regular cyclical culling of the Hamas ranks that follows on from some Hamas attack or atrocity, but just a much more severe version. The trouble is that the grass always grows back. Now, the Israelis' war aim must be security, um, the great goal of living, if not in friendship, then at least in peace uh, with the Arabs uh, they live alongside and amongst. And, you know, to my eyes, killing large numbers of Hamas and in inevitably with them Palestinian civilians is not going to achieve that. But as I say, there are big domestic considerations here. Netanyahu has to answer the public demand for revenge, rather like George Bush had to following the 9-11 attacks in America. Yes, but there are signs, actually, that there are even bigger plans afoot than just crushing Hamas. Even if Israel manages to do that in the short term, it then, of course, owns Gaza, in inverted commas, and is left with the problem of what to do with it. Well, one solution Israel has hinted is that the long-term aim of its military campaign is to sever all links with the Gazan territory. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said that once Hamas had been defeated, Israel would end its would end its, and I quote, responsibility for life in the Gaza Strip. Now, before all this started, Israel supplied Gaza with most of its energy needs and monitored imports into the territory, as well as controlling who came in and out of the territory. What does the Israeli kind of threat to end its responsibility mean? We don't exactly know. Although Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005, the UN regards the Strip along with the West Bank and East Jerusalem, as occupied land and considers Israel responsible for the basic needs of its population. So it's completely um, impractical, in my view, Patrick, to say we're just abrogating ourselves of all responsibility for this territory. And the implication, uh, of course, alongside all of that, is that they are going to sever literally all kinds of communication and all kinds of power and everything else as a result, meaning everything would have to come 
by Egypt. I mean, it's simply unworkable. The much more likely scenario, which a lot of pundits are suggesting at the moment, is that they create an even bigger buffer zone between the strip, no doubt, you know, an incursion into the strip itself, a buffer zone, a kind of sanitized zone with all kinds of security systems, even more sophisticated than the ones we saw before, to try and prevent the fighters getting into Israel. Yeah. Something that's not talked about very much, of course, is Egypt's uh, role in all this. As you rightly say, there is an, a route into Egypt, the Rafa crossing in the south, but Egypt's attitude towards Gaza is very ambivalent. I can't see if uh, Gaza is sort of up for grabs, if you like, territorially, I can't see Egypt wanting it. They'll just be inheriting a massive problem. You've got to remember that Hamas are an offshoot of the Islamic Brotherhood, who are the sworn enemies of the uh, authoritarian regime of President al-Sisi, uh, since coming to power, he's put about 40,000 of uh, the Islamic brothers into jail, and hundreds of them have been sentenced to death. So I don't know, maybe some kind of uh, international authority might be another consideration, but uh, I think that's not going to work with the Israelis either, is it? That would mean them surrendering a degree of security control over the Gaza Strip, and I don't really think that's going to happen anytime soon. Okay, that's it for part one. Do join us for the second half when we'll be asking how real the danger is of all this spiraling into a regional conflict with Israel's prime minister threatening full-scale operations inside Lebanon against Hamas allies Hezbollah. And we've also got a batch of your questions that we'll be endeavouring to answer. Welcome back. The violence on both sides has been matched by an upsurge in bellicose rhetoric from both Arabs and Israelis. Earlier this week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited his troops on Israel's northern border with Lebanon, where he told them that if Hezbollah launches a war, it'll make the mistake of its life. He said, we will cripple it with a force it cannot even imagine, and the consequences for it and the Lebanese state will be devastating. What do you think the likelihood is of Hezbollah doing that, Patrick? Well, I, I think um, stepping back, I personally don't see there's much in it for Iran to order Hezbollah to increase uh, military operations. Uh, they do have the means to make life extremely difficult for Israel. This is Hezbollah. Uh, they've got an estimated 10,000 missiles in their armory uh, with sophisticated guidance systems. So they could possibly threaten to overwhelm the, ta the is Israeli Iron Dome air defences. However, this would be a Pyrrhic success because it would invite massive Israeli reprisals uh, like of the sort that they carried out in 2006 when, again, they went into Lebanon after being provoked by endless uh, trouble from, the, from Hezbollah on the border. They went over the border and captured some uh, Israeli soldiers, killing some of them and, and uh, returning to their bases. Well, in the ensuing a campaign war, really, it was. A thousand of Hezbollah were killed, about 200 Israeli soldiers died. But there was a huge bombing campaign by the IDF, which destroyed vast amounts of the country's infrastructure. So this would be a catastrophic outcome for Lebanon and, and for Hezbollah itself, but also possibly for Iran, because the missiles that the that Hezbollah holds are really an insurance policy. Hezbollah's presence there in the south of Lebanon and the threat they pose is really protecting Iran, well, that's the theory anyway, against an Israeli or American or joint Israeli-American attack on Iran's atomic 
weapons program, which is clearly going at, at full throttle despite all, all denials and, and claims to the contrary. So why would Iran throw that all away? However, I think with or without a Hezbollah attack, there's a real likelihood that there might be some sort of preemptive airstrike against the Iranian nuclear weapons infrastructure, come what may. What do you think, Saul? Yes, well, uh, I, I suspect they'll need a bit of provocation, the Israelis. Although, having said that, you know, their, their modus operandi up to now is to take out the nuclear weapons program whenever they have the opportunity, war or no war, or provocation or no provocation. Um, I think I agree with you that Iran's unlikely to come into this war itself. Uh, and therefore, what Israel really is really going to face, it, maximum, is a war on two fronts. You could say three fronts if the West bank explodes too. But none of these threats are really existential to the existence of Israel. What What is an existential threat, of course, is if state powers come into the play, as they did in 68, and of course, again, in 73. I don't, I don't think any of those scenarios are that likely. It's a little bit like the war on terror against the West. It was always uh, suggested that it was a real major existential problem, and I never believed it was. And I think most most commentators now looking back, even most participants in the wars looking back, uh, are agreeing with that scenario. So this is not a life or death struggle for Israel per se, but it is a very serious moment in their history. And I think the real problem with a lot of this Patrick, is it's politics, isn't it? It's optics. I mean, the Israeli government is seen to have failed its people in a security sense, and now it has to redeem itself. And that means that the measures it takes in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere, if it needs to, if it feels it's being provoked, will be that much more harsh. And as a result, of course, uh, world opinion will drift a little bit further away against Israel. And, and none of that really is what the majority of the people who live there want, of course. Yeah, absolutely right. So I think you're you, you're absolutely correct about all that. And there's but there's something sort of else going on here, isn't there? Which is isn't about strictly about sort of you know security military matters. There's a sort of a huge disruptive element in this conflict, isn't there? It's become a divisive subject uh, in the West, a bit like sort of Brexit here in Britain. It's uh, it, it's something that people fall out over, you know, in sort of private conversations. And so it's, it, you could almost sort of characterize it as part of two big global developments, I would say. One is a sort of culture war thing. You know, you're kind of defined about which side you're on in the, in the conflict. Um, but also in the kind of um, civilizational clash, which has been spoken about over the decades by various historians and, and commentators, i.e., you know, Western values versus Islam. And the Palestine-Israel conflict is a bit of a sort of cockpit for that, isn't it? And, and in all this, as you very rightly say, it's uh, it's the optics that really matter. So that's where the casualties, uh, the civilian casualties that, that may be incurred in Gaza become, apart from the, the obvious humanitarian aspect, you know, the appallingness of any civilian being killed, be they, be they Israeli or be they Palestinian, it kind of ripples outwards. So you know, all this adds fuel to these sort of cultural clashes in the West. 
Yeah, and we can see it in Britain with the the big march in London recently in favour of the Palestinians. Now, marching in favour of the Palestinians per se, I have no problem with that, Patrick. But if you're marching in favour of Hamas, an organisation which has been prescribed by the British government as terrorist, then I do have a problem with that. And we can see the behaviour at Hamas at the beginning of this organisation. What we need to do, as we tried to stress in the last couple of podcasts, is separate Hamas from the Palestinian people. But in, in many minds in the UK and elsewhere, of course, those two get conflated. And looming on the dark shoulder of all of this is, is anti-Semitism. Of course, most people will express that in terms of anti-Israeli. But I have heard many times, I'm sure you have, Patrick, too, that very easily teetering over into more obvious anti-Semitic tropes, which is why, of course, the cartoonist The Guardian recently got the sack for uh, veering on the wrong side of that sort of line. Uh, it's something we all need to be very aware of. And, and let's not be any doubt. I have a Jewish name. I'm not actually Jewish myself. I have many very close Jewish friends, as I'm sure you do, Patrick. And people are alarmed in Britain at the rise of anti-Semitism. Yeah, and having uh, just finished my book on the liberation of Paris in 1944, I'm very aware, of course, of how even in supposedly uh, civilized societies like France, anti-Semitism was very near the surface. I think we've never been put to the test in Britain, so uh, we, we can take some comfort in the fact that it's it's never been a strong political tradition here. But uh, if our geographical circumstances have been different, who who knows? Just Just to get back to the problem of the fundamentals of this conflict. Uh, I think some of our listeners are asking this question themselves, you know, is there any sort of uh, way that this could ever be resolved? But I think the tragedy is that um, peace is, is a long way away. I think you don't have to be a particularly insightful analyst to see that the conflict is fundamentally mad. There's no, no other way of putting it. Neither side can actually win this terrible struggle. It can, it can only be resolved by talking and about accommodation and about give and take. You've got two objectives which are completely unrealizable on both sides. From the Israeli side or from the extreme Israeli side, they can only achieve their ends if all the Palestinians give up on the idea of having uh, their own country, of having a Palestine. Now, that's never going to happen. And from the extreme Palestinian side from the Hamas side, they can only achieve their aims by driving the Israelis into the sea, which is also never going to happen. So this is a sort of fundamental truth, which you know any sensible person is going to acknowledge. But even though everyone knows violence is not the answer, I'm afraid in the current climate, this sort of common sense realization is not going to prevent a further round of violence. On that happy note, Patrick, let's move on to questions. Uh, first one here from Ken Fornell in St. Paul, Minnesota. That's the United States. I enjoyed your presentation very much on the history of the formation of Israel. Uh, we did that last week, of course, especially concerning Abraham Stern. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he asked, but wasn't Yitzhak Shamir, the leader of the Stern gang, uh, otherwise known as Leahy, at one point? Is that right, Patrick? Yes, indeed. Yeah, Yitzhak Shamir, he, he came to Palestine, as was, in 1935 from Poland. He was a Zionist. Uh, he was an early member of the Stern Group. He'd been in Irgun, the first kind of breakaway Zionist armed militant group, which uh, broke away from, from the more sort of uh, mainstream Haganah. And he um, he then, there was a subsequent split, and he then joined Lehi Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, which the British characterized as the Stern Gang, led by Abraham Stern. Now, the British regarded him as a terrorist. He did carry out uh, 
his fair share of, of uh, attacks against uh, both the British and, and I think uh, against uh, Palestinians as well. Uh, but of course, he ended up as Prime Minister of Israel. Um, he's Prime Minister from 1983 to 84, and then again from uh, 1986 to 1990, when I was based in Jerusalem. He was rather a kind of, um, <laughs> he sort of looked a bit, a bit like a teddy bear, but uh, underneath his, his sort of benign exterior, he was a very, very tough politician. Yeah. And, um, you know, just to make an important point here, Patrick, I, it's quite clear that at one stage he was prepared, as, along with the rest of Leahy and the Stern gang, to use terror tactics. Therefore, technically, you could have said at one stage he was a terrorist. Now, I don't have a problem with a former terrorist then renouncing terrorism and then, you know, entering the normal political discourse. So if people are going to say, well, look, there are terrorists on the uh, Jewish side, absolutely right. There were. I think the point is at some stage you have to abrogate uh, terrorism as a sort of legitimate form of action if you're going to enter mainstream politics, which who knows, maybe one day we'll, we'll be seeing the same thing with Hamas too. Okay, we've got one here from Lynn Glasgow, who comes from flooded Blackwater Valley, Ireland. I don't, that can't be the name of the actual place, the Blackwater Valley. I think I think I think I know where the River Blackwater is. Yeah. Anyway, it's obviously pretty wet there. And Lynn says, "Hi, Saul and Patrick. As a confirmed pacifist, I may not be the typical listener to Battleground Ukraine, but I find it the most informative update of the situation in Ukraine and now Gaza." Well, thanks, Lynn. I would ask, though, if you could promote on your podcast any actions supporting peace. I feel we need to admire the peacemakers as a balance to the often worshipping of the warrior. I recognise this may not go well as military historians and with your own publications. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think I think we'd all agree with that, Lynn. I mean, <laughs> blessed are the peacemakers. I think you're absolutely right. They don't get enough kudos. They're, they're not promoted with the same... Uh, kind of zeal they're not seen in the same glamorous light as uh, warriors are and that's something we've got to uh, we've got to try and address of course the great the great exception to that of course is uh, Nelson Mandela who um, was both actually initially a sort of warrior uh, and then a towering uh, example of what forgiveness means and what reconciliation means and one of the great figures of our times and indeed of history. Of course, what we need in in this situation are not one but two Nelson Mandela's, one on the Israeli side and one on the Palestinian side. I'm afraid I can't see anyone in the political landscape that comes anywhere close to that stature, but we live in hope. The sad thing is that there, there are great people on either side. I, mean, I had personal friend Uri Avneri, who was a member of the Stern Gang initially, and then uh, became, uh, this is an Israeli, he, he immigrated from uh, Germany. Uh, he was a brilliant man. He he wrote beautifully in English and spoke beautifully in English, even though it was his third language. And he was an early advocate in the 1960s and 1970s of reaching out to the uh, to the Palestinians. He met Yasser Arafat, then the leader of the PLO, even though it was actually illegal to do so, risking jail. He became a parliamentarian. But you know, he was a controversial figure, even though he was someone who had actually been on the you know the the extremes side of the armed struggle against the British and the and the Arabs. He'd seen the light. He expressed uh, his views with brilliant clarity. He was a great enemy of stupidity in politics, of which there's a great deal everywhere in the world. But as I say, you know, he, he wasn't universally admired in his own country and regarded by some almost as a traitor. 
Yes. And so you know, just to add to that, Patrick, I mean, I, you and I, uh, you know, if people imagine that military historians are kind of worshippers of war per se, they they are horribly misguided uh, because I think the more you study war and the more you study what happens in war and the more people you talked about and the more diaries and letters and, you know, documents you, you come across, the more horrendous the whole scenario seems. And yet, of course, it seems to be a natural state of affairs in that one side or, or another will choose to resort to violence to uh, you know get what they want in effect and if you aren't capable of deterring that with enough military force yourself you are going to get into difficulty so i wouldn't describe myself as a pacifist because i think a pacifist you know in the strict sense of the term you know doesn't believe warfare is ever justified i personally like some christians uh, do feel some wars are justified the second world war is a good example and of course Israel's response to the recent events in and around Gaza would also indicate to me that some of their responses will be justified, but it needs to be proportional. Anyway, um, just a last quick mention uh, of Lynn's email. Uh, she said, as an aside, you were comparing Palestine and mentioned Northern Ireland and the IRA. And I think, she says, balance requires that you also mention the unionist paramilitary groups who pursued similar terrorist activities. And, and Lynn is absolutely right. And Patrick will know probably from reporting from Northern Ireland in the 90s, what a what a tricky business that was separating the actions of the unionist paramilitaries from the security forces. And of course, there was, or at least has been suggested that there was some crossover, which made it, you know, particularly insidious and dangerous. Um, but they were operating there in a pretty brutal and horrendous way, Lynn. And you're quite right to remind us that that was the case. Yeah, quite so. I've got one here from Clayton in Canada, who says, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are regarding the targeting of hospitals in Gaza by Israeli strikes. What kind of strategic value can that have that would outweigh the political fallout from the international community? It wasn't too long ago that we were condemning Russia for similar acts. Well, I think we should say here that uh, I think this is a re reference to the um, the explosion at the Al-Akhli uh, hospital in Gaza City last week. And it seems that we were right not to rush to judgment, Saul, because the weight of evidence is that this was a rocket fired from Gaza, maybe uh, by Islamic Jihad, that misfired. And this was not an IDF airstrike. Um, so, Clayton, I don't think that the IDF, in fact, I'm sure the IDF is not specifically targeting hospitals. But, of course, in this very densely packed urban environment of, of uh, Gaza City in particular, it's inevitable there is going to be what's euphemistically called collateral damage. So you're right. I mean, there is nothing to be gained uh, by the Israelis uh, trying to kill civilians. Uh, now, Clayton says that he's not coming actually from a position of, of, of accusing the Israelis of this. He says, the vast majority of voices I hear on the topic are very strongly pro-Palestine, most of which is a uh, knee-jerk emotional outrage. And it's very sad. And this is exactly the sort of response that Hamas counted on uh, from such people to undermine the Israeli response. Well, you're right about that. I mean, Hamas don't have any qualms at all about positioning themselves among the civilian population from their point of view. You know, any kind of negative publicity presenting uh, the Israelis as, as these sort of, you know, their monstrous enemy who don't have any concern at all for Palestinian life helps their cause. Uh, and it, you know, it certainly does because 
I think over the years, uh, the what if you look at the numbers, there's a sort of certain imbalance in the number of uh, Israelis casualties caused by by terrorist atrocities and the innocent lives lost in the Israeli response. And I think over time that inevitably erodes sympathy for Israel, and that. I would say, is, is part of the Hamas strategy. Yeah, which links in with the next question from Eric. Uh, and he asked, no matter how violent and shocking the attack by Hamas, they cannot hope to defeat the IDF. Uh, so what's the aim of their attack? What is this all about? Well, you're right, Eric, they can't defeat the IDF. It is not an existential threat to Israel, but they can cause enough damage and, and here's the important point, provoke such a violent response that they hope Israel will be even more isolated internationally. Are they imagining that other Arab states might come into the conflict? We've already sort of addressed the likelihood of Iran doing that and suggested that that won't happen anytime soon. So I doubt, honestly, they expected this to be a full-scale war against Israel, which had a chance of achieving Hamas's stated aims, which are the uh, eradication of Israel as an entity. So you've got something much less than that. And, and this is really all about how this conflict can provoke Israel to committing the sort of acts that is going to isolate it internationally and, on the other hand, of course, increase support for Hamas. I, th- I think it's as simple as that. Yes, I think you're, I think you're right. So there's very little chance of Arab states. Uh, Iran, of course, is, a, uh, is, is not an Arab state. But uh, I, I think the surrounding states are in no position to mount any kind of attack, even if they wanted to, which uh, I think there's, there's no indication that they do. On this question of the Hamas game plan, if you can call it that. It is actually pretty hard to understand why uh, what they did, uh, why they launched this, this essentially, as I've called it before, a pogrom against the Israelis uh, could actually do them any good. But there is a certain amount of sort of fatalism that I encountered in my time in Palestine, Israel, and in my visits to Gaza. Gaza is quite different from the West Bank. This is something that should be borne in mind. The West Bank has a kind of uh, social structure historically, which is not present in Gaza. So there are big families, there are notables that uh, are comfortable with power. They have authority and they have respect. Um, This has been eroded over recent years, but it's it's still present as a proper sort of social structure there, uh, which gives a place of cohesion and inclines it to moderation. So that's why, in a way, you've got, uh, that's one of the underpinnings of this divide between uh, the Hamas regime in Gaza and the more moderate Palestinian Authority regime in the West Bank. Gaza is, a lot of people in Gaza are the descendants of people who were uh, driven there. They're descendants of refugees from the 1940, late 1947, 1948, what was essentially a civil war between the, the Arabs and the, and the Jewish population of Palestine. Uh, and they don't have the same sort of social structure there. There's also a very, very strong Islamic tradition. I mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood, the forefathers of uh, of current Hamas. And I think there's a certain sort of fatalism that I, I encountered there, um, which means that Hamas can actually, instead of facing some huge political backlash as a result of, the, of all the misfortunes that their attacks bring down on the heads of the Gazan population, that they seem to not only survive this, they actually seem to gain strength from it. So it is a rather kind of mysterious sort of psychological process, which I don't personally feel they're capable of, of fathoming. 
We've got one here from Charles Owen. And while he uh, very much enjoys the Ukraine podcast, he feels that Gaza, uh, of course, the subject of today's podcast is is a distraction and that we and that we're not actually giving any more information to Charles and other listeners than he could be getting from other mainstream news outlets. Patrick and I both disagree with that on two grounds. Uh, I'll give my reasons first. Uh, One, we feel that the subject is important enough to need to be covered uh, on a rolling basis, weekly, until it resolves itself. And we we doubt that will happen anytime soon. And secondly, of course, we do feel our experience. Patrick's actually spent time reporting from the area. But, you know, I've written about some of the Israeli conflicts of the past. And we do feel in a unique position to offer insight, not just as journalists, but also as historians. I think that uh, although you you will, of course, get um, up to up to the minute reporting from mainstream media, the actual underpinnings of this conflict are are complex, and they're very deep, they go back a long way. And I I think uh, in a podcast, you can explore some of these and add some value to uh, to listeners understanding of, of what's going on there and and the subtleties and the contradictions and the complexities in a way that uh, you can't from reading a newspaper or watching a, a news program on the television so i like to think we're bringing something to it and we do have some expertise i lived in jerusalem for two years i've written a book on the on the sort of historical period of 19 late 1930s early 1940s and, and i think you know this is also about you know our podcast is about conflict in general so charles give us a chance do keep listening uh, if you don't like it then you know it's very easy just to not to switch on but we're going we're going to keep going uh, we we think it's important not just for the specifics of this particular conflict, but it has repercussions for Ukraine, which, as you say, is the day job, but um, for you know the global situation generally. So for as long as it stays like that, uh, we're going to carry on. I should just add before we go that I won't be here next week for either of the two episodes because I'm doing the charity SBS Paddle in Scotland. Absolutely madcap adventure that's taking place over three days, paddling 63 nautical miles. That's over 70 road miles in what will be quite tricky sea and weather conditions. This is all for the very good cause of raising money for the SSAFA SAFA Armed Forces Charity, which is a wonderful charity uh, and covers all the bases, not just the SBS, of course. So if any listeners are interested in donating to this, what is going to be a pretty grueling ordeal for me, then please go to Just Giving Saul David SBS Paddle. If you type in all of those to Google, you should be able to get to our Just Giving page. Okay, well, that's all we have time for. Do keep the questions coming in to battlegroundukraine at gmail.com and do join us on Friday for our weekly update on everything that's happening in the Ukraine war and also when we'll be answering listeners' questions. See you in a couple of weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye.